0: Calling all Quakers. We are back, Quaker Nation, and I'm very excited to welcome our second guest to the podcast, both Penn students and NFL interns, Sarah Hugh and Zach Drapkin. My name is Nikki Belgrad, and alongside me is my very good friend, Joey Pyatt. And like I just said, today's a very special episode in that we're going to scrap our normal segment-based style, and we're just going to be having a conversation with Sarah and Zach, kicking a little bit. Talking about their uh, experiences working with the NFL, we're gonna get some of their input on analytics, both in the present and the future for the NFL. Talk about a little college and the differentiation between NFL and college and sort of scheming, all that type of stuff. Um, first off, we're gonna, we're gonna start with Zach. He's gonna talk a little bit about his Penn Sports analytics group and their relationship with Penn Sports teams, which teams they've been advising and working for. And then, like I said, the four of us are just gonna open the floor, have a discussion about, uh, you know, everything really. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, with this special segment, we're not going to have a concluding segment today. So you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for my much-awaited Grizzlies season-opening check-in. But, you know, don't worry. That's that's coming. Uh, the Browns got a great win against the Broncos, even though they're very, very injury-ridden. Staying afloat in a very, very tough conference with the Bengals and the Ravens both ahead of them. But anyways, all that stuff with Kevin Stefanski and the J-Squad is going to have to wait. And today, we're just going to kick it off with Sarah and Zach.
1: All right, so for our first segment for today, we're gonna to be going over the internships that both Zach and Sarah had. Sarah is our other guest, Sarah Hu. Um, she's also a student here, she's in the Wharton School. Uh, she interned with the Lions, Zach interned with the Ravens. Uh, we're gonna kick it off with Zach and have him sort of talk about his internship with the Ravens, um, what his role was, what are some of the things he got to do, um, the processes he got to watch and study under, uh, because you know he was really working with the analytics team, getting to see how they worked with the team, the players, the coaches, and he's just gonna give us the inside scoop on some some of how that process works.
2: Sure thing. Um, So I was a football analytics intern during training camp for the Baltimore Ravens. So that entailed being there for about four weeks uh, over the course of training camp. I was working. So the way the Ravens have their analytics set up is they have a player personnel department uh, and they also have a coaching department and there are analytics people specifically working within both of those departments, sort of just as other members on the hallway for those departments. So I was in player personnel that that really has to do with sort of team and roster management, uh, scouting, uh, drafting, those kinds of things. And so... You know, given that it was only four weeks, it was a a pretty short time and training camp was going on, but a lot of the experience I got was uh, really figuring out how they watch practices, hanging out with scouts, understanding how they think about things, watching film with them, dissecting film players. Um, And so like every day we would go out to watch practice in the morning. Uh, talk to the scouts while you know look at just ask them you know what they were looking for in the players we would have meetings every day to to look at some college tape just to dissect uh, different elements of players games ask everyone how like why they evaluated a certain player a certain way we would dissect um, that morning's practice later on we would have these different film sessions that would rotate Um, So I learned a lot there just on the football side and how to evaluate players from from a scouting perspective. And then when I wasn't doing that and once the scouts had left, uh, which was after the first two weeks, the rest of the time was spent working on analytics projects. So I got to you know, use some, some data that the, the team has, which is, the Ravens are a team that, that's pretty analytically advanced, and so they have a lot of databases and data sets already built out. And I was, I was honestly surprised at how many projects that I sort of came up with, maybe I want to work on this. I would ask my boss, he said, oh, we already did that. But I got to, to work on a few projects, um, one of them sort of related to the NFL draft, but you know, really just taking over that project and as I was working on it, just learning from the other analysts they have there, understanding the best way to go about things and more than anything, learning some strategies from them on how to communicate those insights to non-analytical decision makers. Because ultimately, the main project I worked on presented that to one of the co-directors of player personnel at the team. And I spent a lot of time working on that presentation, figuring out the best way to convey information so that it's most useful, most understandable, and least combative or, or least controversial I would say just just trying to figure out the best way for information to be conveyed
0: yeah I like that you bring up this relationship between sort of like the analytics team and the coaching staff because obviously you know each coach has their different style their different game plan and so their reluctancy or maybe their enthusiasm to implement a certain thing of analytics is really just dependent on you know what team you're on what type of coach you're playing for and sort of what they prefer um, but I, you know I'm, I'm taking it back to the relational aspect of it in sort of the emotions of the first few days um, was it really intimidating to sort of come into an NFL team and be like they're relying
2: on my research and my analytics to like make real decisions in the NFL. It was pretty surreal. Um, the you know with COVID going on, the NFL's got a lot of COVID protocols. The first thing that happened when I got to the facility was I had to go to the tent to get my COVID test, and the first person in line in front of me was Lamar Jackson. And this was like a couple of days before he tested positive for COVID, which luckily there was there there was no issue there, but it was pretty surreal. Just like yeah, okay, I got here, and he's just you know chilling right there. Um, but once we walked in, I mean, it was just really cool to get to see the inner workings of an NFL front office because it's something that I've wanted to to experience and, and been thinking about for you know most of my life. I would say I didn't necessarily feel the pressure of anything sort of depending on me because it was mostly learning experience. The Ravens have a lot of really great, really smart people working for them already that have done really great work. And so mostly I was just taking in how they do everything, learning how things work and trying to figure out where I could fit in and be most helpful uh, over the short time I was there.
1: Yeah, and go into like that, you know, picking things up and getting that experience. Can you talk a little bit more about how you changed maybe things you learned in the way you watch game, the way you watch, you know, film, the way you go about, because obviously when you're watching things as a fan, it's a lot different. And I'm sure you already kind of watch things with an analytical eye just from doing your work on the side. But uh, was there anything that really differed once you got into that, you know, professional setting, seeing these people that do it for a living all day long? Um, what were some of the things that you picked up on in the way they just watched the game, uh, watch film, watch practice, you know, be careful not to overreact, underreact, stuff like that?
2: I think it was, um, you know, it, it was really down to the nitty gritty as far as for individual positions, like what are you going to look for in a player? I learned uh, one of my office mates was a former NFL wide receiver. Um, and so when we would watch film in, in that room, I learned a lot of like specific concepts as far as the route tree, but on a given route, you know, why is it called a certain number on the route tree? What are the techniques involved? What do you want to see from a receiver when they're running a certain route? Like a lot of it with a receiver is getting leverage by pushing up field before getting into your breaks. You know, you want your motions to be um, sudden, uh, concrete, and so that the defenders really can't predict your movements and, and you can create that separation.
1: Yeah, super cool. And then I guess if you also, were there any other kind of surreal moments, you know, you talked about being behind Lamar Jackson, were there any other kind of things that, you know, happened where it kind of was like that moment where you kind of like stepped back and were like, just how special like that opportunity was to be there.
2: Definitely, I mean, I was fortunate enough that uh, while the scouts were in town, so the first two weeks we had a department meeting every morning, um, so the, all the whole like player personnel department, and that was led by the general manager Eric DaCosta, So um, we would all meet in the draft room, and he would sort of debrief us on any new injury news or other news going into the day. Then someone would talk and give some insight or just you know teach everyone something that they're interested in from their life. So like being able to be in the same room with him, and I got to, to chat with him a couple times was pretty cool. And then the other thing was there was like a, an event with like hosted at, at John Harbaugh's house. Uh, and like there are all the players and coaches hanging out there and like sort of everyone around the team so just getting to sort of just see everyone hanging out not in some any sort of uh professional setting or anything like that was was um was definitely pretty surreal just a bunch of like players and coaches who i recognized from tv just chilling at someone's house
0: yeah and i know you guys obviously got an opportunity to go to the ravens line game in, in week three which ended up being an absolutely nail biter um sadly to say the Lions kind of blew that game once again and justin Tucker had an absolutely insane game-winning nfl record field goal to win 1917 in the last seconds of the game so i guess just take me through your
2: experience with that like how fun was it <laughs> I mean, that, that's my guy right there. You know, we were we were very fortunate. Uh, Kayo, who was Sarah's boss at the Lions, and she'll go more into her experience, um, he was able to, to give us some tickets. So um, given that it was both the teams playing, like teams that we had been working for over the summer, um, we thought it would be a good trip to plan. We also got to go to the Rutgers-Michigan game the day before. But just at the game, like the expectation was that the Ravens were going to, to deal they were going to deal with the Lions pretty handily wasn't really expecting much from the Lions and honestly in the first half it was like 10-0 at halftime something like that didn't look particularly competitive all of a sudden the Ravens hit this rut the Lions um, started coming back it was a little worrisome Sarah started getting a little more confident about the Lions as the game went on then they took the lead Um, then you know the Ravens were at fourth and 19 with 30 something seconds left and, you know, a great pass play to, I think it was Watkins, to get the first down, and then I remember, basically, as that happened, I was like, Sarah, there were seven seconds left, so I said, they're going to run a quick play, and then whatever happens, Tucker's coming out, just because he's the best kicker in NFL history, and... That's that's what happened and it was funny because as he kicked the football because it's a 66 yarder like the chance of that going in is not very high and so everyone in the stadium like most seats You don't really have a good view on whether the kick is both straight or long enough You either can you can usually see like one or the other and so people just sort of assumed it was gonna miss and so all the Lions fans started cheering before like we saw where the kick went and then I was I we we were like around the thirty yard line or something, and so we had the horizontal view, and it was like, wait a second, that might go hits the upright, goes in. The Lions fans were still sort of cheering, and then it took a few seconds for it to hit everyone and realize that it went in, and they they lost. Which, I was super excited because that was a historic moment. I was glad I was there. It was also heartbreaking to see like the Lions just you know once again the game was taken right out of their grasp. I think my partial experience of the game was sort of
0: not so much knowing that Justin Tucker was going to hit that uh, kick, but more so knowing that the Lions were going to blow it and lose <laughs> the game somehow. And I remember sitting with my friends and being like, the Lions are losing this game. Like, Justin Tucker is going to make this kick. And so, yeah, yeah. obviously that's what I, didn't you know. Know, I mean
3: Honestly, I didn't even see the kick. Like, I didn't see the ball hit the upright. I was already cheering by them. Test of that. But I was cheering. Didn't realize what was going on until he started cheering. And I was like, what happened in that? that was the moment that I realized
0: yeah well luckily you got to work with the Lions you know before they're you know currently sitting at 0 and 6 and so maybe the team culture is a little bit down in spirits you know did your experience differ in any major ways do you think from Zach's or do you find you know sort of similar paths
3: no mine was a bit different I was also an analytics intern but like Zach said the Ravens are one of the most analytically advanced teams in the league the Lions I would say are a bit newer in terms of analytics like it's department has only been around for a few years but it's growing and so we're kind of a small group right now and so in that sense we weren't we weren't really separated into groups we kind of all just tackled all the issues together and so in that sense i got experience in like all the aspects i got to work in personnel scouting we did some sports science like all of that so i wasn't like limited to just one kind of category but so i think i learned a ton in that sense i would say like one of the coolest things I was able to do there was just be around people who genuinely loved football. And so I could just like go across the hall and talk to one scout and just ask like, we could just start a discussion about like one random coverage and we could talk for a few hours and like, it would feel like no time had passed.
2: Yeah. And I can echo that sentiment. I would say like being in an organization where everyone loves football and that it's oriented towards winning games, winning championships, there's just like a sense of like, family and uh, camaraderie that I think is really unmatched it just felt like a special place to be because everyone was interested in the same things and really aligned toward the same goal
3: yeah to add on to that I could really feel that especially with the Lions because they're it's a new regime right Dan Campbell's just been brought in Brad Holmes has just been brought in Dan brought in like all these new coaches but like these new coaches they were all former players and so like even though it's their first year i can really tell that they've really gotten to the players like you can feel the fight in them every single week like dan campbell has instilled this like sense of like grit so that they haven't given up despite their 0 7 despite their 0 and 7 record and like i think you can really see that on the field
0: No, absolutely. I think I catch a little glimpse of them just watching the red zone each week, but they're playing against really tough opponents. You know, obviously the Rams, they had a close game with them. Mm -hmm. I think their grit really does uh, show, and the fact that they're also willing to take risks, that onside kick up 7-0, I absolutely love that. And It's like, when you're 0-6, you know, verging on Mm 0-7, there's no risk, and so I absolutely love the experimentation, you know, the type of thing that Priori should be doing, but, you know. Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) Like, um, Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes are both very much embracing analytics, and I think that's great, because they're more willing to listen to what we're saying.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I want to get some caffeine analytics for Dan Campbell. I don't know if you guys saw that. No, there no. Was what someone are you that about? He uh, at something. a press conference in the off season. He talked about like he drinks a ridiculous amount of like coffee each morning. Like and then someone made a video where they tried to drink the same amount of coffee and they got halfway through and had to stay in bed the rest of the day. It was yeah. just way too much. No,
0: I know caffeine addicts are a different level. It's like if they yeah. don't have five cups of coffee a day, their their head is cooling me, and I'm like I don't understand how yeah. that's possible.
3: It was there. There were a lot of let's just say we had a lot of coffee sent to the office just because sponsors <laughs> yeah. really enjoyed Dan Campbell. I mean,
2: all, all jokes aside, though, as much as like the Lions are still winless, like that team has showed a decent amount of fight. The new like regime didn't come in with a whole lot set out for them, but certainly like building a decent foundation. And honestly, given that the goal right now probably isn't to win a championship, getting a little unlucky might result in a better draft pick for the next draft, and that yeah. can help set up the future. For I'm the really
3: team. happy with where we're at right now.
2: I think the team culture thing that you're talking about is, is totally valid though like you see
0: i don't know a lot of people saying you know with the 76ers this whole long four or five year run of them losing almost on purpose to build this team culture and always looking towards the future whereas the lines right now are saying let's win games now it doesn't matter if we're not super bowl contenders let's establish a winning culture um so i think that's absolutely totally important and they're a fun team to watch honestly so i'm excited to see what they're going to do with golf obviously and how they develop in the next year because he doesn't look that terrible i don't know (laughs) i don't know but you might have different thoughts but no i
3: really feel that though just because like this was my first summer but everyone i've talked to at work they've told me how happy they are with this new regime just because before they had matt patricia and bob quinn they can really feel a different change in culture and i think everyone's just happier in general
1: i think it's a fun team too i feel like it's just dan campbell's personality as a team and it just makes the lions like very fun to watch
2: I can't wait till one of these games they like give one like a good team a run and then actually take them they down. Have,
3: they have, given the <laughs> Ravens a run. I'm saying the then Rams actually,
2: down. they they keep doing that. I want to see them take a team down. I think that would be really exciting. I'm and I think you know, th- given that Dan Campbell has you know has been really emotional like in his press conferences oh, and God. stuff and saying how hard they're competing and he's not giving up. Like it's something that you just want to see them do well.
3: I think America is rooting. Really-
1: I think everyone is. I think yeah. his press conferences, every mor- the morning after on Twitter, I
0: think Dan Campbell just single-handedly gets everyone to root for the Lions. He's
3: a very likable person.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I've actually, uh, I pull up the Lions schedules. I would yeah. love to hear a prediction for when the Lions,
2: if okay. and when they're going to get their first win. So they have they have the Eagles this Sunday. The Eagles are a team that the Lions have a pretty good chance against because even though the Eagles, like in public perception maybe, are a team that are thought to maybe be better than... And their true ability are just, like, better than they are just because of the past few years they've been good. Like, the analytics and the markets generally trend toward the idea that they're not too hot. And, like, Jalen Hurts has been great for my fantasy team, but he, until late in games, he hasn't really been able to produce. And I think, like, the Lions could easily, you know, come out to a hot start and just, you know, stay ahead the whole game. I, I could totally see that happening.
3: As much as I do want to see that, I am concerned for our cornerback matchup versus, like, Devontae Smith and Quintez Watkins. Quez.
1: Quez Watkins. Watkins. So (laughs)
3: sorry, so sorry. I even picked him up in fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) But I do worry because our cornerback depth has been thin recently.
0: Yeah, and obviously, I think some season-ending
2: injuries, right, early in the oh, season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've had,
3: I think we are the number one most injured team this season. Um,
2: mm. Correction number two. Sorry, number two Ooh. after the Ravens. The Ravens really? are, are <laughs> uh, emphatically number I, one. I want to see where the Browns are, okay? The Browns have been
0: decimated as <laughs>
2: well. <laughs> oh, that preseason <laughs> Ravens injury, Ravens that week of Ravens injuries was pretty rough. Like yeah. two ACL tears or two season-ending injuries on back-to-back plays in the same oh, practice. Yeah. Three different running backs are, you know, that would be at the top of the depth chart gone. Marcus Peters gone. Um, Now Ronnie Stanley's out for the season.
1: And those are all great players. I mean, Ronnie Stanley was a high draft capital player. Marcus Peters is a yeah, very important. I mean,
2: a, he's a like franchise cornerstone player. Yeah, he's no one thought that the running
1: backs, backs and losing those would be the least important like I'm injuries say, that have been for I, that I team. Have something
0: to say about the value of those running backs that we might want to get into a little bit later on, but um, I don't know. <laughs> I all of them get injured and seemingly they do better. I don't know. I think they're they're missing Marcus Peters and Staley for sure. But
2: yeah, um, I think the last few games. Because Averett has taken over at that second corner spot, and the other teams have been really attacking him because you don't want to go at Marlon Humphrey. Yeah. So not having Peters as a solid number two outside corner, uh, I think, is making the defense struggle a little bit. Because you know we have a Nick, you know Tavon Young is a good nickel corner, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Smith is like a solid backup option in the slot. Has been very formidable, but uh, teams are are really attacking Averett, and the Bengals really.
1: Yeah, we did really well. we just, just saw that defense. with. Yeah, it was Jamar, well, it was Jamar Chase, They I mean, he's been a great deep threat, but they were just doing, like, quick out routes to him, because they were just taking advantage of it underneath.
2: Yeah, and honestly, like, the long Jamar Chase touchdown was just awful tackling. Like, mm-hmm. sure, he, it, there was some sort of in-breaking, you know, cut he made after he caught the ball, but, like, there were three guys there that should have tackled him, and one of them just sort of dragged him between the other two, and, like, gave him a clear path to run 80 yards. Um the tackling, the last, like, there have been some big plays resulting from bad tackling. The Colts game was, was similar a couple weeks ago. Or, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Chargers game was a lot yeah. better. Um, okay, so getting back on track, um, I just wanted to wrap up talking about your experiences
0: with the Ravens and the Lions, respectively. Um, were there any funny stories, any moments that you were just dying to share that you thought, you know, you didn't want the viewers of Quaker Nation to miss out on?
3: Oh, yeah, I, I think I've got a few. I'll, sh- I'll share this one for now. So basically, I guess Zach talked about this a bit, but there were a lot of COVID protocols. I was very fortunate to be tier two. We got to be around players, coaches, literally anyone actually. But um like during training campus one day, I was assigned to help the players sign footballs and then toss them to the fans just because they can't actually interact with fans. But so I was like I was helping these players sign footballs and then like toss them, right? And so like Jared Goff was one of the guys I was assigned to. So I give him, like, a Sharpie and a football, and then he threw a Sharpie at me, just uncapped. So I, I actually have a Sharpie stain on my pants, but now I can tell people if they ask why I have a Sharpie stain on my pants, that Jared Goff threw a Sharpie at me. I mean,
2: he signed your pants. I guess that. I right. guess that's what
3: we can call it, yeah. The <laughs>
2: privileges of, uh, of being a, a Tier 2 uh, <laughs> protocol member, I was with the plebeians in Tier 3, mm, mm. so we couldn't really interact much with uh, with players or coaches for the most part.
0: Okay, but all in all, it sounds like you guys just had absolutely great experiences with the teams, and we sort of already seamlessly transitioned to talking about sort of the broader uh, landscape of the NFL and sort of analytics, but um, I was wondering, are there any other teams that you guys find particularly analytics-driven? Any teams that are a little bit stubborn? or Are, are Ravens really the head of the pack? Or um, yeah.
3: Recently, Seth Walder from ESPN actually released a survey where he just kind of surveys analytics staff members from across the league, and it turns out the consensus is now that the Browns are the most analy- analytically advanced. Let's go, Cleveland. <laughs> I, think, I think we do have to cheer for them because Kevin Stefanski, their head coach, Absolutely. is a pendulum. Mm-hmm. But I think he might argue that the Ravens are still on top.
2: So I think not much has changed between this this survey and the previous years, which had the Ravens as the dominant one. Like this year, the Browns had the most votes by a decent margin. It was like the Browns and Ravens at the top of everything, but Browns were number one. I think part of it is because the Browns have had a little more on field success as a result of the analytics investment, and I would say recently, as far as like number of hirings, um, and and just use of analytics. Overall, they've made a very clear commitment, and so I would say that they've probably invested the most resources in analytics. Um, I, I do think that, the, that not that much has changed, and, and the Ravens um, just have a lot built out because they've been doing it for a while now, and I think that both teams uh, are very exciting to watch as a result of that. Because in football, the nice thing is teams that are sharp analytically um, tend to, to play with styles and be aggressive in ways that you know high, higher scoring makes things more exciting. Um, so like the Chargers-Browns game earlier this year, there were so many fourth down conversions and the battle at the end of the game, whether to score a touchdown or not, the Browns dragging uh, Eckler into the end zone. Yeah. Like, those are great things to see. I mean, I think the fact that you've got the two best, two most analytically savvy teams in the same division playing each other twice a year is fantastic to watch. Um, but it's anytime a team is having success really breaking in with the traditional football decision-makers and getting them to think more analytically, I think it's a plus for everyone. Also, I would say, uh, adding to that list, the Chargers, um, as far as staff-wise, don't necessarily have the most analytical team, or they haven't necessarily invested in it, but Brandon Staley, their first-year coach, has been phenomenal. I mean, he clearly wants to understand the game um, at a deeper level and is seeking out these insights. He's given press conferences, one, explaining why he's been, he's been aggressive on fourth down, explaining how pressures are more stable than sacks. Um, I mean, the analytics community loves him right now, as they should, and I think he's a young coach um, and, and really understands this stuff and how it can help. And so uh, if, if the Chargers really uh, take that to heart and invest a lot in analytics, we could see them... Uh, come up at the top of the of, of that list in some at some point, maybe in the next five ten years.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think it helps these you know the analyst crowd that these teams that are using it are doing so well and have these exciting players that are kind of the face of the you know you're Justin Herberts, you're Lamar Jacksons. I mean they're the face of the leagues. These teams aren't going anywhere. They get a lot of attention, a lot of prime time. So that definitely like bodes well for analytics. Kind of like on the other side of the coin, are there any teams that you think um, do things that like don't line up with some of like the analytical best practices, like things that teams are doing that like everyone in the analytics world would you know call them out as wrong or, or wouldn't think it's something you should do?
3: I my New York Giants are not very analytically advanced. I will admit. <laughs> I I don't want to attribute that to like Gettleman or Mara, but I do think the team as a whole might be a bit more behind the rest of the league. Like, you can just see that on the field, like, when on fourth downs, for example. They consistently opt to kick a field goal instead of going for it on a fourth down when the Giants, for the most part this year, have been clear underdogs and should be going for it and more aggressive on fourth downs. But, but, I mean, it works for me because I have Graham Gano in fantasy, and he's been putting up numbers just because they kick a lot of field goals.
2: Yeah, I mean, the my team that I've been, you know, rooting for for the longest time is the Seahawks. And similar story there, I think going into the game against the Steelers last week, those were the two teams that hadn't gone for a single fourth down all season yet. And um, Pete Carroll is a phenomenal culture builder as a coach and his players. I mean, he, he really gets a lot out of his players, but scheme wise and, and game management wise, there's a lot to be desired, I think, just because he's been in the in football for so long and has sort of his ways about him, about what's worked. He's a, he's a little stubborn. Um, and then the whole let Russ Cook move movement thing and how he's I think his instincts are just so built towards risk aversion and running the football that it makes it a little frustrating sometimes to watch uh, the Seahawks waste a lot of their talent on the passing side of things. But the other team in that matchup that hadn't gone for fourth down yet. The Steelers is another one that I feel like has to be brought up because they drafted a running back in the first round this past year, Najee Harris, who they've been using the crap out of him, um, getting a lot of touches, and he's performed well. But in analytics generally, like running backs are fairly replaceable um, and draft picks are really valuable. So using your first rounder on a running back is is pretty uh, pretty hard to defend from, the, from that angle. So I would say any team that's uh, either investing a high draft pick in a running back or paying a really large contract to a running back is probably not following the analytics on that and so there's there's room to be improved there that being said the the browns gave nick chubb an extension recently um, which it wasn't at the top of the market for running backs and you might commend them for that there are other arguments to be considered about how it's hard to just not retain a really good player that you drafted um, but even some of the, the most analytical teams are struggling with some of these things as far as how to actually apply them to decision making when it comes to re-signing players. Like the Cowboys certainly caved and paid Ezekiel Elliott a bunch of money, but maybe we would expect a team like the Browns not to, and then they go out and pay Chubb $12, million, 12 million a year, I think it was.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of a great segue into it. something else we kind of want to talk about was kind of the value of running backs. I mean, obviously, Derrick Henry has kind of been getting everyone's attention, especially with Patrick Mahomes kind of struggling to start the year. Those two are kind of favorites for maybe MVP. Derrick Henry is a dark horse MVP candidate. Um, what what is the value of running backs? Do you think there exists those players like Derrick Henry that you know are the exception? Do you think it's more of an exception in them? they're kind of the normal players or do you think that overall that there's just no need for um, kind of running backs to be you know a, a hot commodity a first round draft pick because um, kind of anyone and there's teams that you know like the 49ers that have shown us or even the Ravens that have shown us that you know running backs can come in and succeed when there's good scheme put in place when there's good quarterbacks that can move take the pressure off when there's a good passing game
2: yeah I think it's been a pretty robust finding in the analytics community as far as the idea that a lot of a running backs performance depends on the situation he's put in so as you said, the scheme. The other players around him, so the offensive line um, and just the, the offensive planning in general, so like the 49ers who you mentioned have a really great outside zone scheme under Kyle Shanahan that's driven a lot of their success at the running back position, and they've had a lot of different players have success in that system. You're seeing with the Ravens, part of it is that Lamar Jackson's a really good, unique rushing quarterback, but also Greg Roman's running scheme has made it so that any running back, especially this year with all the injuries, that comes into play has had success um, and now. There was some espn report that other teams are looking to trade potentially for some of the the running backs that the ravens had signed recently to deal with their injuries um so the the general argument for it is when you analyze um the performance of like a running back and look at how it correlates to winning the running back themselves does not necessarily contribute a whole lot above replacement to their team's winning and oftentimes like pass plays are more efficient than run plays and so Teams that run the ball more in early down situations and when they're not already up a lot are not scoring as many points. And so the idea is just that because so many other factors determine the success of a run play, your resources are better spent elsewhere. It's not that running backs don't matter. It's not that running backs that are in the NFL are not good. They're great players. And there are a few people like Derek Henry that can really stand out and consistently overperform what you'd expect on, on any given play. But it's just that most running backs are not significantly different from replacement level running back that you could sign as a free agent or draft or in the late part of the draft on day three or like get undrafted but just given what the top of the market for running backs costs that money can be better spent at positions that have more value as far as like if you look at how a player's performance let's say in terms of pff grade correlates to team success like spending that money on a position that is more impactful in the pass game obviously quarterbacks most important but like corner or wide receiver or even pass rush things like that just tend to correlate to success more
3: I, I do think we also need to emphasize that like while you do have these exceptional players like Derrick Henry, giving them extensions past their, like, giving them a second extension past the rookie deal is very risky because running backs especially have a big aging effect. Once they pass a certain, like, certain, after a certain amount of years in the league, you start to see their production really, like, plummet just because they face the most wear and tear, like, on the field, like. Their bodies are taking
0: on a lot of just right. Yeah, yeah. Damage, the, the curse of I the three hundred and seventy carries, where you know, if a yeah. running back gets three hundred seventy carries or more, you know, there's a crazy drop off. The next. Right. Yeah, you can really see it. it yeah, decline. yeah.
1: I think in Todd Gurley was like the perfect example of that. I mean, he went from kind of an elite player to someone that you know can can't even function on a team anymore, and he's still under thirty at this point. It just goes to show, like, especially a second contract gets into such precarious waters.
2: And not just that, but like. He was having great success for the Rams, and then C.J. Anderson comes in late in the season and takes his job. For the most part, he started getting the bulk of the carries. And then in recent years, we've seen a plethora of other running backs. Like this year, Daryl Henderson's looked pretty good. The same McVay offense seems to me like it's more of the scheme than the specific running back there. And we've seen then Gurley went elsewhere didn't have the same success. We've seen a bunch of examples of that, which really just goes to show in practice. I think that's sort of the best way of displaying this idea is that when you have as much of like a controlled trial as you can get where you have the same team and the running back changes and both running backs have success and then elsewhere one of them doesn't or both of them do not, maybe it's not about the running back that's determining the success and they're just in a fortunate situation and and you know making the most of it or doing what you'd expect of an NFL running back in that spot.
0: Yeah. I'm super curious to see how the value of running backs evolves um, in a few years, just looking at like high school and college, I guess, preparation and how players, I guess, develop into their actual position. You know, if analytics is telling you that your money and your time is spent elsewhere, then you might see a guy like Derrick Henry go to wide receiver, go to linebacker, you know, play a different position where he's going to get paid and have some job security. But then of course that begs the question, you know, then that, raises the value of running backs back up. Because if you do have a guy like Derek Henry place my running back, you know, then that flips everything. So I think basically I'm just asking, how do you see things developing in the next few years? Like, will there always be, I guess, like a few running backs who are in the upper echelon who, you know, are going to make a difference for their teams? Or do you kind of see things developing towards the point where it's just all about analytics? It's all about doing the most efficient thing in terms of money. And yeah.
2: I mean, there are areas of the game where I think, like, and I think both sides of this argument there's always a gray area, right? So analytics will say that running backs don't matter. And while, you know, for the most part, running backs are more replaceable than other positions, it's not like they don't matter at all. There are facets of the game, like pass blocking and, you know, route running that running backs can really separate themselves in. Clearly, you know, there are some traditional football decision makers that don't quite see it the same way. But again, coming towards the middle, I think what we've seen, for example, in Atlanta with Cordell Patterson transitioning from wide receiver to running back, having running backs that have a versatile set of skills that really can function as an additional wide receiver for the offense, can be really versatile I mean we've seen Carolina and New Orleans use McCaffrey and Camara as those sort of players that you know function dually as running back and a receiving threat and I think while those teams might actually overuse their running backs in those scenarios um, as far as their efficiency goes like those kinds of players are ones that can still make an impact at the position just because the more versatile your offense is and the more you can do especially in the pass game I just think it's a lot more for a defense to consider and try to try to handle
0: okay Um, So I think we're going to go ahead and close out with a little bit of just like NFL discussion, Um, you know, get Zach and Sarah's opinion on some of their Super Bowl picks, maybe their MVP picks, you know, sort of maybe their S tier of teams that actually have a legitimate chance to be Super Bowl contenders. So I guess I'll just hand it to you. Do you guys have any hot takes about MVP candidates? Um, We're seven weeks through the season right now. The Cardinals are undefeated. Kyler Murray looks pretty unstoppable. What are your guys' thoughts?
2: My hot take may not be at the top of the market as far as like, you know, betting odds or whatever for who's gonna be the MVP, but relative to his current price, Patrick Mahomes just seems like an absolute steal value wise because the Chiefs are three and four. They haven't been the team that we've expected from them, but one, it's a small sample, and two, we just know from the past few years, Patrick Mahomes is an MVP level talent. And like, we, sh- we should expect the Chiefs to return to more of what we've seen from them over the last two years. And assuming they make the playoffs and put together a run, like I think they can as much as um, their current stock in the public sphere is sort of down. I think Patrick Mahomes' price right now is like plus 1800 to win MVP. Whereas I think if they put together a good rest of the season, he's got a very good shot. He was the clear favorite for MVP um, preseason. He was like plus 500 whereas everyone else was like plus 900
1: yeah I mean and he's people are trying to you know people are ragging on him you know it's the same Patrick Mahosey scene but really I think the Chiefs main problem is that their defense isn't the normal like average to below average it normally is um, which normally the offense they'll make for up for us it's actually just absolutely terrible and they've just had you know more turnovers than normal so if they get the turnovers down and the defense picks up even a little bit they you know could easily be a playoff team and, and people are talking about it completely differently so I think it is more of an overreaction Sarah do you have any kind of additional thoughts on the Chiefs and kind of that situation no I do agree
3: I think the Chiefs Actually, be historically bad this year. Don't quote me on that though. But um, in terms of MVP discussion, I I would say Mahomes, but I think his supporting cast is better than Kyler's. And if you look at Kyler's performance so far, just seven weeks in, I would say it's Kyler's Oh,
2: absolutely, Kyler would be the like if, if I had to name an MVP right now, it'd be Kyler. I just mean relative to perception as far as um, if you had to bet on a player to MVP at their current price.
0: Okay. Yeah, well,
3: I, I've never looked at the betting <laughs> market. I'm so I, sorry.
2: Um, my my
0: concern with the Chiefs is honestly like a little bit of their offense. Though I mean, they play Tennessee and they scored three points and they scored a touchdown for the first time in Patrick Mahomes' career. I just feel like something is like absolutely broken with that team as far as just like something mentally, something with them being sloppy, being overconfident. It seems like I don't know. I almost wonder if it's almost past the point that you know, it, there's no way that team is going
2: to perform well enough for Mahomes to win MVP. You know, I mean, one part of that is just that. As much as they have Hill and Kelsey as these clear top two options in the pass game, the loss of Sammy Watkins having not like not having a consistent second wide receiver um, might be hurting them a little bit. But I think the other thing is now that some teams have really given a blueprint for how to stop the Chiefs' offense, which is really sell out on that pass game. And however they'll beat you in the run, they'll beat you with the run. But it's better to stop. The pass game and and take you know whatever losses on the ground. Um, I think teams are doing more of that, and it is making it hard for them to succeed in the passing game. And just given how much they've invested on the offensive line, they should be able to run the ball a little more effectively. Like comparing that with the Bucks, who beat them in the Super Bowl. Uh, the thing that that's difficult with the Bucs is they have an equally prolific passing attack, or or close to that at least. But they've also had more success in the run game, you know, with their duo and outside zone concepts. Until teams can stop that, they can't sell out against the pass the same way as teams have started to do against the Chiefs.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, especially because I, I was reading a piece in The Athletic today that was talking about just the way that, you know, Patrick Mahomes was one of the best quarterbacks against the Blitz, and teams are, have just completely stopped blitzing against him, and, you know, they dropped a lot more coverage, to a lot in the past, like you said, and because of that, you know, it's made his job more difficult, and he's still doing Patrick Mahomes things, but the problem is he's not putting up the stats because those packages are different against him, just because the defense isn't playing well, they're just not, they're not having as many possessions, it's just things aren't, things just aren't clicking in the same way, so I wonder if they'll have time to make the adjustments, I and mean, I think that's more of what the question is, whether they'll have time. To make the adjustments and move forward or if it's gonna be something they have to go and
2: retool in the off season. The other thing is their strength of schedule has been pretty difficult at the start of this season. Like some of these, games, like we would have expected them to win a lot, of, like more of these games. But I think they've gotten a little bit unlucky in some of the games. Um, but like they faced a lot of teams that we'd expect to make the playoffs. So I think the slate later in the season will probably be a little more favorable for that. So should, we should see some positive regression.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking at the AFC as a whole, with the sort of quote unquote fall of the Chiefs, it seems much more wide open than you might expect. Um, we have you know the Raiders and the Bengals who are tied for the lead in the AFC which I'm not saying they're, you know, AFC championship contenders, but I'm just wondering if you guys see any clear favorites um, in the AFC and who you guys think or, or even rooting for it. I mean, obviously, you know, the Ravens are a prime candidate, but who knows if they even win that division.
3: <laughs> yeah, it seems like every time we think we have found a new like AFC champion, they seem to go down the next week, like the Bills, for example. Like, I think we all thought they were going to be at the top, Yeah. then they lost the next week. But um, my predictions for the AFC... I still I still think the Chargers are gonna be up there. They might win the um, Conference, but I just firmly believe in Coach Staley
1: as do I I've been a big Chargers fan of what they're doing and big Chargers like hype train guy So I completely agree.
2: I think the Chargers are certainly a very good team I think came back down to earth um, prior to their bye week this past week when I was at that game the Ravens just <laughs> demolished them and I think part of the reason uh, why that is, is that prior to that game, they had converted on almost every fourth down, and their third down and fourth down efficiency was just way higher than, than stable sort of levels, and so they'll come back down to earth on that, but honestly, like, they're playing really well. I can see them competing. I will say as far as, like, winning, getting the first seed in the conference, just in terms of strength of schedule within the division, like, the, the West with the Chiefs and Raiders both also being very formidable teams, and the Broncos are not a pushover either. Like, they might not win enough games to get that one seed. Similar case for the North, like, the Ravens have been a very strong team. The Bengals took them down this past week. I wouldn't say the Bengals are a stronger team at this point. I think most people probably agree. Um, but those teams are going to have a hard time getting as many wins as like the Bills, who are in an AFC East that doesn't really have another team that's expected to make the playoffs right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think we could completely get the number one seed in the AFC not be the best team in the AFC just because you know the Ravens have to go against a Browns team that could pull off a win, or you know a Bengals team that pulls off a win like that. It's not better. I mean, the Ravens are probably um, they're probably the team that I pick as the best team in the AFC right now. I just like the way they're playing. I like what they're doing. I think they're a good team in general. I think Lamar Jackson is just a game changer in the way that Patrick Mahomes is, but people don't quite appreciate as much or give him as much attention for it. So, but I, I think it's a great point, like that we might not see that number one seed being the true number one team.
0: Yeah, I think it seems particularly wide open this year. And, you know, also we just see, like, in the NBA, with such a long season, teams and stars really just don't care about the regular season as much. And, you know, it's still very, very early on, I think. We saw that the Bucks were sort of, you know, chilling a little bit and then ended up winning, what, seven in a, in a row to win the Super Bowl. And... Have been what eleven and one or something crazy like that since they you know might have started actually carrying towards the to end of the season. So we'll see if any similar trends like that um, tend to take place. But uh, transition a little bit just to the NFC. Do you guys see anybody knocking off the Bucks or do you guys kind of just think they're the most complete team and gonna take it?
3: When did we establish the Bucks as the first place team in the NFC? Well, that's
0: my that's my opinion. I, we I feel were just like...
3: talking about the Cardinals and Kyler Murray.
0: This is true. I, I just I feel like. I'm not going to have a justified opinion for this, but I just feel like I haven't seen anything in the Bucks that's going to make me bet against Tom Brady in the
1: playoffs. And the thing is, I've also seen the Cardinals one too many times had the shoe drop. On them, and I'm just waiting for that to happen. I think if they win, I mean, they have the game against the Packers this week, obviously. I think if they can win that game, you know, on Thursday night, I think that is a big statement for them and saying that, you know, they are for real. It's not a team that's going to lose that game, then lose two more, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're right in the middle of that NFC West battle. I think that how they perform in the next few weeks, and if they win these games, I think that they, they could make that
0: case.
2: Yeah, it'll be a big help for them if Devontae Adams is out too. Yeah,
0: I I also just forgot why I'm totally out on the Cardinals. I forgot that after last season has nothing to do with analytics at all, but just seeing Cliff Kingsbury make idiotic choices one after another and just like absolutely losing games for his team. I just I don't I feel like what's preventing him from doing that again this year. And it's like when you're I don't know. I I personally just favor the experience, but it's it's also one of those things that I'm not going to believe in Kyler until he like shows me that. I should believe him if that makes sense. So I think I'll wait for him. I'll wait for the playoffs. Um, I mean, the yeah. jury's
2: not even out on whether they're the best team in that division. Yeah, yeah. The Rams are, exactly. are also pretty good, I would say. They're ranked similarly as far as, like, if you'd expect them to play on the neutral field. It'd be pretty close to 50-50. Yeah. Um, I just think the Bucks are. their offense is pretty unstoppable. Yeah. Um, And defensively, I would say we've seen a little regression for them. Um, So they're not as dominant as they were in the playoffs, but still formidable as long as they can avoid any more injuries to that secondary. Whereas the Cardinals have gotten good secondary play this year, but they're a little thin there, and it's hard to really expect those guys to keep playing at the level they have so far.
1: All right, so jumping into Penn football, since we last recorded, Penn dropped two games. Uh, to Columbia, they lost to Al Bagnoli, who was their former coach, is now at Columbia. They lost 23 to 14. And then this past weekend they lost to Yale 42 to 28, and more of a shootout compared to some of the games that Penn has been playing in. That dropped Penn down the two and four on the season 0-3 and in Ivy play. Um, just some background on what happened. John Quinley, who had been the team's starting quarterback through five games, suffered some sort of injury against Columbia, but he was suited up against Yale. Um, that didn't matter, though, because the team went with freshman Aiden Sayan, who started in his place. He was actually the first freshman since 2013 to get any reps in a game with the Quakers. Uh, that stats courtesy of Penn Athletics. But even the QB change couldn't stop Penn from you know, being beaten by Yale. And you know Penn is now in a pretty difficult position in the Ivy League. Uh, they, fa- they face Brown next week, who's also 2-4, and 1-2 and two in the Ivy. So they could get a win there. Um, but there's really just a lot of stuff going on with Penn, and we're not quite sure what's what's happening. Nicky, do you have any thoughts?
0: Yeah, we've also seen some further experimentation with uh, wild card Mark, Marcus McDaniel, who played uh, high school quarterback. Uh, He was a Russian quarterback, but he was also, I mean, primarily now a college DB. And so I think the further usage of him and obviously the sighting of uh, Aiden, saying is very unexpected. And I think we're going to have to see how that plays out for the rest of the season. But as you mentioned, uh, they play Brown team next week, who's put a lot of points on the board against their opponents, even though they're sitting at two and four right now. Um, And then after that, they play very difficult uh, Princeton and Harvard teams. So it's going to be very difficult for the Quaker team to really do anything for the rest of the season. Um, I think we see now a lot more experimentation in a lot of those rookie players, a lot of that freshman experience that Priori is trying to getting uh, trying to get right now um, before the season ends. Um, But, yeah, I really think we're not expecting much out of this Quaker team in terms of any Ivy League titles and really just using this as a period of regrowth, trying to, you know, get everything straight for next season.
1: Yeah, I think. Like you talked about, with the recalibration, I think it's really important for this team because obviously, like you said, an Ivy League title is kind of out of the question at this point. And most of the players on this team, you know, you're Isaiah Malcolm, you're Ryan Craig, and these guys are going to be graduating. So maybe they do stick with an A and say in the rest of the year. Maybe there are bumps, there are ups and downs. Um, you know, he has some flashes, he had some really nice passes, but he also has some mistakes, which are going to happen. But perhaps he sets the foundation for a good year next year. And really, at this point, that's all Penn's playing for, setting stuff up
0: for, for next year and years to come. Yeah, Um, so I think now we can transition a little bit, you know, staying on the topic of pen football but uh, welcoming our guest, Zach Drapkin, who has a little bit of a relationship with both Penn football, Penn baseball a little bit, but primarily Penn basketball, I think. Um, but he's just gonna talk to a little of about his club, Penn Sports Analytics Groups, and what they do with uh, Penn teams, whether they, you know, working with them internally. He doesn't want to give away too much information, obviously, but he's just gonna give a little bit of overview of his relationship. So Zach, why don't you go ahead and take it away?
2: Yeah, sure, thanks for having me, Nikki. Um So the Penn Sports Analytics Group is like an undergraduate club, and we primarily work on providing analytics services for Penn's athletics. Teams, So we started with Penn basketball and that's been our primary sort of client on the athletic side, but we've expanded to baseball. And football more recently, and what we do is we meet with the coaches and the rest of the team and sort of talk about how we can help them using numbers, figuring out what data sources we have, analyzing them, putting together pregame scouting reports, postgame dashboards, just whatever we can do to sort of provide an edge using data for the team, given we have so many students that are proficient in analyzing data in the context of sports. I think it, it helps give an edge on the court, and the basketball team has certainly been a proponent of the analytics, and we've seen our stuff getting used on the court.
0: Yeah, I was just curious, like, is this relationship something that you started out of your own personal interest or sort of something that you thought might be good for the group? Like, uh, I was curious if you saw yourself maybe in, like, a coaching role in the future or more staying on the sides of, like, team consulting in the uh, analytics, you know, with an analytics background.
2: Um, So as far as the sports analytics group, that was created years before I was even at Penn. And so I've just, now that I'm one of the co-presidents, sort of running that group, been involved since I was a freshman. With the football team, we really started probably a year or two ago, just meeting with them, seeing if they're interested, if they're open to analytics. So over the last, you know, once, once the team got back and started practicing again, we've just been working on analyzing some data from a couple seasons ago and just building that relationship and sort of thinking about the kinds of tools that, that we could build to help them in the future and really set up that relationship for next the next generations of the club to really expand on.
1: Yeah, and you talk about that relationship a little bit. Walk us through and maybe give some of the audience kind of the inside perspective on what it's like, you know, meet with coaches. Uh, I mean, this is their full-time job. you they're running Division One programs. Um, you know, this is it for them. Um, it's probably pretty cool to be able to kind of have the hands-on thing, meeting with coaches. Just walk us through that process a little bit, that behind the scenes.
2: Sure, it's it's really interesting to see how everything works as far as each coach's different point, uh, perspective on, on game planning and constructing a team how they, the way they think about things. And as far as meeting with them from an analytics perspective, like communication is half, if not more than half of the battle when it comes to making an impact. And so it really has to to do, like we're fortunate at Penn here that the Penn coaches are very open to analytics and figuring out how we can maximize our resources to get an edge. If we're not necessarily getting the best recruits in the country over some non-Ivy schools, but just trying to be the best within the Ivy League and do the best with the resources we have. So our coaches have been very open with that, but the goal is really just trying to figure out where are this, the, their blind spots? Where can we improve? And just when we are doing analyses, um, trying to make it as much a collaborative process, trying to figure out how we can sort of strike a balance and, and support the team rather than coming off as combative and just you know, saying, you're doing this wrong, you need to do this instead. It's more of here's what we see in the data Um, how would you address this or how would you try to fix this knowing that this is like a negative trend or this is a positive trend. You got to keep doing that. We really like that you're doing this. Sort of just reaffirming what's going well and then trying to sort of together brainstorm and and problem solve as far as how we can fix the, the weaknesses.
0: Yeah, were there uh, particular examples of analytical trends that Penn football, for example, was maybe a little bit more responsive to or some that they were a little bit more resistant to implementing or, you know,
2: things that we might expect in the future? I I would say that um, we're still early in the process to the point where we haven't had a whole lot of our own tools that we've suggested them to use right now. Like, we've, we've analyzed previous data just to show them trends on the other Ivy League teams. I think... Um, one thing that I've seen recently is I know a few years ago Penn was pretty aggressive on fourth downs, and I saw um, there was an inquire piece where Coach Priore was, was talking about how he sort of dialed that back a little bit because they didn't have a whole lot of success. Um, and he's mentioned that he's certainly open to the analytics on that, and it's just sort of figuring out when is the right time, how to you know gain more trust in that. And I think one of the places where we can have an impact is just, really talking to the coaches and figure one, just explaining to them why the analytics say to go for it on fourth down in certain spots. And then two, figuring out the best way to present that information so that during a game they're prepared, they have whatever data they need and they can say, all right, based on my sense of the situation, I'm making a numbers informed decision, but the numbers aren't making the decision for me.
1: Yeah, no, super cool stuff. And I mean, it's super cool to see it on the teams we watch, you know, we're all, I mean, it's your fellow classmates, are the teams that, you know, we're, we're cheering on. So definitely cool to have your work kind of pay off like that.
0: Um, well, I just wanted to thank Zach and Sarah so much for coming on the pod- podcast. It was an absolute joy to hear about their experiences in the NFL. And honestly, just answering some of my questions about the value of running backs and talking to, to intelligent, experienced, obviously informed people about it um, was great. And so, yeah, thank you guys again. Yeah, just
1: echoing what Nikki said, I think it's super cool. I mean, just to have you guys on already so knowledgeable about the game, already like so ahead of your years and to think that like this is just you barely scratching the surface of like the football knowledge and like the analytics knowledge you'll, be, you'll, you'll have in like three, four years. I think it's super exciting. I think everybody, everybody will be excited to you know, follow your work. And I mean, analytics are only going to go up. So I think you guys are in like a great position.